there's a story about a guy named Shep. And uh, Shep was a, a young man who went hiking with his family. They went out, like they drove in separate cars, and Shep got to ride with his young nephew. You know, like family reunions, the kids want to ride with the uncles, and you're all in different cars, but you get there to the same place. Well, they all went to hike a waterfall, and they, they hiked together. It was a great family trip. Just everything was going fine. But Shep had to leave early, so he got in his car, and he started driving back to where he needed to be. The family stayed out there in the, the regional park, in the wilderness zone. And then Shep got a call uh, while he was in his car on his cell phone, and they said, hey, you know the nephew that rode with you, he had his EpiPen, like his epinephrine, in your car, and he left it in there. He is having an allergic reaction. And there's not a lot of help. We are in a kind of a, a sticky situation. We really need you to come back and bring his medicine. Like, it's, it's very, very critical that you do this. And Shep was concerned and understood the situation, and he said, okay, I will be there this evening, if not tomorrow. Uh, I'll try to make it there in the evening, but it might be tomorrow and the, the next day at the latest, but I, I'm coming, and I'll be there for you. This was confusing to the family, problematic and concerning, as you might imagine, and sadly, the young boy died because he wasn't able to get the medicine that he needed to deal with his allergic reaction. Now this makes us aware of some problems. You probably have some questions among other things. This is a horrible situation. It seems like it was preventable. It seems like this didn't need to happen. It maybe reminds us of other situations of everything going fine. There was no problems. Were people involved who could have helped but didn't? Sometimes we don't have explanations for why the things that happen, happen. But we know how they make us feel. And a lot of times, these situations, the suffering that we experience, the loss that we experience that seems senseless, makes us ask the question, how in the world could a loving God allow so much suffering. Our hearts break when we hear about a young boy who dies. Any young person, we go, wow, that's too soon. Anybody that we know or love, regardless of their age, we say, ah, that's not okay, what's happening? If we zoom our, our purview out wider and we say, they're suffering constantly, there are people who are oppressed. There are people who are trafficked. There are people being taken advantage of. There are people who intentionally murder other people, murder groups of people. Why is this happening? The argument that a lot of people will make in light of all the suffering in the world, which is actually a pretty good argument if you think about it, and it's the argument that pulls them away from a God that maybe they once believed in or maybe never decided to believe in, the argument goes like this. Suffering exists in our world, which means that God is either not loving or not powerful. Therefore, the God that you believe in is not real. It's the biggest problems you'll hear often. God either cares but can't do anything about it, meaning he's not powerful, or doesn't know, 
doesn't care. And whichever one you choose, none of those are satisfying. And that it varies throughout history. But that, in our day, is maybe the number one reason people don't want to have anything to do with the God of the Bible. This series, like I said, is us hearing these criticisms of people who believe. You believe in a God who's either a monster, because he doesn't use his power to help, or he doesn't have the power that you claim that he has. Either way, those are the options. How do we respond to that? How do you respond to somebody who directly or indirectly lets you know that they're asking this question? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? Three answers. I'm going to give you three answers. The first answer is silence. I think the first answer is the best answer. The first answer, silence and presence. Just being there maybe is the best response you can give when this question comes up. Let's practice silence together. We're not comfortable with silence, especially when someone is suffering, maybe in a hospital, maybe in a funeral situation, maybe in a broken relationship. If you're the first responder, you're the first one there, you feel like you need to bring something. Bring a word of encouragement. Bring a word of hope. Bring an explanation. It's, it's very, very tempting to just try to control it, to do something, to move something, to be useful in some way. The best response is silence. Let's practice being intentionally silent together. For how long, Jacob? You don't get to know. feels like nothing. Feels like nothing's happening. But something is happening. Silence and presence speak louder than anything you can say in a moment of crisis when someone is in need. That's the first of three answers I want to give you this morning. And I think it's the most important one. The most important response, silence. And just, just being there, showing up. Second answer, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you think you know. <laughs> if you want to get to answer number three, it has a little bit more content. To show my hand a little bit. 
I don't know. Why this? Why now? Why at all? Where is God? Why didn't he, right, where? I think an honest answer and a faithful answer is, I don't know. Not, I don't know anything, or not like a cop out. There's nothing to know. That's not what you're saying, but I think it's okay, and it's fair to say, I don't know. It's kind of a way of saying, I may not have a satisfying answer for you at this time, or something that I can say that will help at any time. Don't say, I don't know, until you've done the silence part. These, are, these go in order. Silence presence, being there with somebody. Second one, I don't know. People throughout history have tried to come up with better answers than I don't know. They've come up with theology and philosophy to help us make sense in a senseless situation. And honestly, a lot of these answers people have come up with just kind of fall short. We say, there must be a reason. Why, why does God allow suffering? Well, there's got to be a reason. Maybe he took away your cookie because he's going to give you two cookies later. Is that a good answer? I don't know. Well, this must be a punishment. But this person was innocent. This person was a good person. Well, there's going to be, there's something that we don't know about. It's a punishment for a sinful attitude or a sinful heart. Is that a good answer? I don't think so. This answer was debunked by Jesus. There's examples in Scripture where people go, oh yeah, you know, he was blind because, you know, his parents were messed up. Jesus says, that's not how it works. This person died. This person is suffering. Oh, well, there must be some, something that offended God. And he went, boop. That's the consequence. That's the punishment for stepping out of line. And Jesus, in those situations, is consistent with saying, like, that's, that's not how it works. Jesus flips the script a couple times and says, actually, this suffering, this thing happened so that God's glory can be revealed. That's Jesus. I don't know that I've, I can heal a ton of blind people. But Jesus says, just, just wait, just watch. First answer, silence and presence. Second answer, I don't know. I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure what to tell you. Okay, you may be real dissatisfied with this equipping session at this point, because like I could, I could do that on my own, Jacob. Um, maybe there's got to be better answers than that. Maybe, uh, maybe there are. This is where I want to go. But I, I wanted to make it very clear that I don't want us to jump to these answers. Remember when we started this series, we said, we're going to be giving you some information, even like some research and some data and just some knowledge to have, so that if people are critical about different areas of the believing person, why would you believe this? What about this? We want to have faithful responses. But all throughout this series, we have said, we don't want you to just take this information and throw it in people's faces. You remember the squirt bottle illustration from a few weeks back? Like, we're going to give you full bottles. And you're going to be like, ha ha, I can't wait to squirt Hank with this. This is going to be great. That's what squirt bottles are for. Resist the urge to come out guns blazing with information. And this, I would say, more than any other question that people ask, applies the most. So once you've done silence, once you've done, I, I don't know, I'm, I hear your, your concern, I hear your cry for help. There are some things to keep in mind. 
And I don't even know if it's, it may never be the appropriate time to share this with someone. I would venture to say when someone is in the thick of it, when there's a fresh wound, when there's grief that's still just, just there, that may not be the time to talk about any of these things. So proceed with caution. Or maybe better, proceed with wisdom. But here are some things to keep in mind. And I would say these are not, like I said, these are not crisis situation pieces of information, but they're good for you to know personally. Maybe sometime you can share. Man, this is a big, long preamble to <laughs> what I'm about to say. One thing, it's kind of like a logical response to this musing, this question, is that people often say, because I can't see a reason for the suffering, there must not be one. Well, that's not always true. People will say, God might have a reason that we don't see, we don't know, we can't understand even if we do know. While that may not be a satisfying answer to give, it's kind of a lot like the God's going to give you two cookies later response, may not be the best. There is a little bit of truth to that. We have to be honest and say, often we go, because I can't see the reason, there isn't one. Well, we're talking about God here. Can we acknowledge that maybe there's something at work that we don't see, that we can't see, that we can't understand? It's kind of like the infant whose parent takes them into the doctor and has to hold their arms down while the doctor gives them some medicine, maybe via injection. And the child goes, I have no idea why this is happening. This is awful. Why would you do this to me? Why would you allow this to me? The parent is trying to prevent future suffering. Again, be careful with this response because it's not always satisfying. But there's humility in saying, if we're talking about God here, maybe he knows some things that we don't. Another thing to keep in mind on the logical level in response to how we deal with suffering, the fact that people see and feel this sense that suffering is wrong, it's not just uncomfortable, but it's wrong in some like moral, universal sense, points to the fact that maybe there is a universal lawgiver. The fact that something is unjust on the always scale indicates that maybe there is a higher law. Atheists will not acknowledge this. Not that atheists can't be moral or they can't be caring or compassionate. That is totally true. They, they absolutely can. But listen to this quote from a book from an atheist that talks about human uh, biology. And if it's separated, if there's no intelligent design, if there's no creator God, he says this is what we need to um, expect. This is from a book called Sapiens by Yuval Harari. He says, Homo sapiens have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. We feel like rights have been violated, and you are, don't believe in any like universal law, code, or morality that we are held to, then you can't say that. If you want secular humanism with no intelligent design, no higher power, no sense of like God's law, then this is part of it. Christian author C.S. Lewis kind of went away from faith and came back to faith because of this information. He admits that before he became a Christian, his atheism was fueled by the problem of suffering in the world that seemed to go unnoticed by God. But then he realized logically this. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea 
of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust and not simply that it didn't happen to please my private fancy. Consequently, he says, atheism turns out to be too simple. Just acknowledging that there's something wrong with the world. We say, yes, because of God, because God has a standard for his creation. Not just because it feels weird. Another thing to think about, Jonathan Haidt, a non-Christian philosopher and sociologist, points out that a lot of people find meaning and clarity and even peace in times of suffering. Often positive transformation and long-term results come out of an experience of suffering that might not have happened without it. Author Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, tells a story about a man who lost his eyesight because he was shot in the face during a drug deal that went wrong. Horrible situation. You wouldn't want to find yourself in that. But here's what the man said as he reflected on this incident. As my physical eyes were closed, my spiritual eyes were open, as it were. I finally saw how I'd been treating people. I changed. And now, for the first time in my life, I have friends. Real friends. He says, it was a terrible price to pay. And yes, I must say, it was worth it. I finally have what makes life worthwhile. Now again, we have to be careful here. Because we're not saying that good outcomes justify the bad situations. Some people will say, ah, look. You needed to go through that. God needed to make that happen to you in order for you to get here. I I, I would never say that. Don't say that to people. But it is to point out that God is always at work. And God can take any negative situation, often caused at the hands of human free will, and that's a whole other conversation we won't get a ton into today. But he can take those situations. He can take those, those, those pains, those losses, those horrible things that people do to each other, and he can redeem them. God is never at a loss for what to do next. He never looks at a situation and says, I got nothing, you guys. God is constantly creating. One of my favorite songs by the band Gungor is called Beautiful Things. And the quote that I remember from this song is, You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things out of us. This is the God who can make dry bones come to life again. And there's more. There's more logical arguments that go back and forth between people of faith, people who don't believe. But these are just some pieces of information to have that logically when people say there can't be a God because of suffering, there's another side of that coin. Tim Keller says, Nothing is more important than to learn how to maintain a life of purpose in the midst of pain and painful adversity. Sociologists and anthropologists have analyzed and compared the various ways that cultures train its members for grief, pain, and loss. And when this comparison is done, it is often noted that our own contemporary secular Western culture is one of the weakest and worst in history at doing so. Our own contemporary Western society gives its members no explanation for suffering and very little guidance as to how to deal with this. I think that that's true. We take away God, we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater and said, okay, it's all meaningless. It's nothing. Another quote from an atheist author, Richard Dawkins says, our universe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's it. 
Suck it up. Deal with it. That's life. You crush an ant. They don't have an ant funeral. They just move on and keep doing what ants do. And they say humans are the same because they don't believe in a God that sees and knows and is powerful enough to do anything about it. But the Bible, on the other hand, has a lot to say about suffering, about where is God in our hurts, and doesn't God care? You read books like Job, there's entire stories, some of the oldest writings that we have in our Bible, wrestles with the problem of pain and suffering. Did God do this? What's, the, what's God's role in this? Where is God? What should you do in light of this? There's bad advice, there's, there's wisdom from heaven. We've talked before about the lament psalms. So many of the psalms in our songbook are crying out to God. Why am I suffering? Why are my enemies prospering? Where are you? I feel like I'm surrounded here. I'm about to be devoured by lions. God, where are you? First of all, it's okay to feel that way. Ancient Israelites told us God can handle that. Be honest with God about your doubts, the things you want to cry out, your questions that you have for God. The book of Lamentations is poetic expressions after a time of devastation in Israel's history. They do have tools to offer of how to deal with suffering. And I think the best example of this is the gospel. It's the story of the God who is not distant, who is not unknowing, who is not uncaring, who is not impotent, but who suffers alongside his people. If the two biggest concerns, the two biggest criticisms people have of the God that we worship is he's either not caring or he's not loving, the gospel story blows that out of the water. There's a key example of this in John chapter 11. The story of Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus begins a lot like the story of Shep and his hiking trip. I don't know if you noticed that. But Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was sick. They said, he's dying. He's sick and he's going to die. And Jesus wasn't far from where he was. He could have come. He could have done something. He could have been there. And what does he do instead? He says, let's wait a couple days. And we go, what? And Jacob, you're using this as an example of why God does care. He's not off to a great start here. Where is Jesus when Lazarus is in need? That's the question that Mary asks him when he shows up. Two days late. Is it four days? Martha asks him the exact same question in the exact same words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's a nice way of saying, where were you? You could have helped. You could have been here. He's dead, and we are at a loss. Not just emotionally, because we loved our brother, but as a woman in society, like the, the brother legitimized her well-being. What's going to happen to a woman who's unspoken for, who's uncared for, who is unsupported? All of these things going through her mind and just saying, Jesus, where were you? And he shows up, and he says, well, I'm here which would be like Shep showing up to his nephew's funeral and saying, oh, don't worry. We all believe in heaven. You'll see him in heaven. You'll see him again, and I'm here now, and that's what's important. Strike two, right? Jesus shows up and does. He says, you'll see him again at the time of the resurrection. Or Martha offers that, and Jesus goes, yep, that's true. And you can just hear Martha she doesn't say this, but she's thinking, yeah, yeah, I will see him again in the resurrection. You know, that's what I was taught. I guess that's what I have to believe. But that does me no good right now. Absolutely no good. I'm at a loss. I, 
I wish you would have been here, Jesus. She's asking the question a lot of people in our world are asking, which is where is this God who can do something, God who cares? Jesus goes to the tomb with them, and he weeps, which may be the most confusing part of this whole story. Why does he cry? Jesus has already said, and we see later in this story, that he's going to raise Lazarus. This story is called the raising of Lazarus. He's not going to stay dead, and Jesus knows this. Why is he weeping and grieving with these people? A lot could be said about this. A lot has been said about this, but just as this is one of the shortest verses in the entire Bible, I think the simple explanation suffices. Because he cares. He's weeping because they're weeping. He's weeping because he loved Lazarus. He's, he's, he's feeling this. He is not somewhere else. He is not distant. Jesus' response is presence. In weeping, this is just being there with the family. So he does care. It's not that he doesn't care. He obviously cares. We'll go on to talk about that more in a second. But check out the other one. Is he powerful enough to do anything about it? This story gives us the other answer. He shouts to the tomb, Lazarus, come out! And he comes out, and he's alive. And everybody goes, oh, man, that's why we wanted you to be here, because we believed you could do that, because you are powerful. Jesus in John chapter 11 says, I do care. I am powerful enough to do something about it. But he needs them to understand when he tells them, I'm here with you. Martha thought, I need my brother. And Jesus is like, I get that. But you need something even more important than that. You need me. Because I am the resurrection and the life. There's no seeing Lazarus later without me. You need to understand that. Do you believe that? And they say, yes, we do believe that. And then the story continues. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is put on the cross. Jesus lays down his life and demonstrates to an even greater degree how much he loves his people, how much he is willing to die to show God's love. He goes to the cross and think about this. What is the greatest pain somebody can experience? You don't have to answer, but just think about it. If you were ranking pain, Michaela, Kristen, I'm sure that there's like a triage in hospitals. Like, what's the worst pain? You're on a scale of 1 to 10, what's a 10? You know, I've heard broken femur. The old Joseph Spinka special is like the most excruciating pain. Maybe childbirth. But uh, there's physical pain and loss. There's pain of not getting what you want. An ambiguous loss. There's pain of losing someone who's close to you. And just, just think about the greatest pain that someone can experience. We think about Jesus on the cross sometimes. And we think about his discomfort, his physical pain. I think there's a greater pain than that. We think about him losing dignity because he was naked on the cross, because he was ridiculed, because he was spat upon. And we think that, oh, I would, I would almost rather get broken femur than be ostracized or be rejected or just be shamed in front of my whole community. Oh, that would be terrible. Both of those things happened to Jesus, but I don't think that those were the worst part of his suffering. Jesus lost the relationship with his father. Jesus took on the sins of the world and he experienced hell on the cross and in the days following. Hell being the absence of God's life-giving presence, something he had never not been without, never not known. He came to earth. He gave up his deity, accepted the sins of the world. He took all that on so that we don't have to 
And I think that's why he was so grieved in Gethsemane. He knew that was coming. He didn't want to not be in relationship with God. That was the worst possible suffering he could imagine. He said, take it away if it's your will, but I'll still do it. And he did it. And Jesus was raised on the third day. Back to life. Back to status. Exalted. Back with relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is the God of power. This is the God of resurrection. This is the God who cares. This is the God who loves enough to do something about it. Think about this. When you feel like someone doesn't love you, what is the antidote to that? What makes that better? You feel like, ah, oh, my, my kids don't love me. Ah, oh, my spouse doesn't love me. Ah, oh, my neighbor. I don't, I don't think they even like me. Like, what, what changes that? It's when they show that they do. When you get information to the contrary. Think of what it's like when you feel unloved and alone. What changes? Words and actions of the people that you want to care about you. Words and actions that say you are loved, you are seen, you are not alone. What we see in Jesus is the ultimate expression of love and concern. The ultimate message that says you are loved. The degree to which the God of the universe goes to defeat sin and evil and suffering and restore broken relationship with his wayward people is astounding. This is our response to a world that says there's a God that doesn't care or can't do anything about it. We say, we see it in Jesus. We see it in John chapter 11. We believe the Gospels. And we have this greater vision for what God is going to do with that. And this is, I'm almost done talking. If you're getting restless or if you're <laughs> tired of uh, whatever's happening up here. Last two things I want to say is we believe in this vision where God is restoring creation. And he's inviting us into a place and an existence we've never known before. Where there's no sin, there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no tears. We've sung the song before. No tears, no tears in heaven. It's an old song. We'll probably sing it before too long. There's this moment at the end of the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. If you know the story. They're, they're taking the ring to Mordor. They have to destroy it. Gollum is trying to come after them. And just at the very end, spoiler alert, they bite off the finger. The ring goes in the, in the volcano. And everything that was wrong, every, all the evil that they were trying to fight against is suddenly defeated. And Sam looked at Gandalf and he says this. I looked again and I could hardly believe my eyes. Nope, I skipped ahead. Here's what he says. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And this is a beautiful scene of restoration. I think what Tolkien was trying to do in this scene was to paraphrase what we get at the very end of the Bible. At the beginning of the Bible, we see God with his people in Eden, in a paradise, in a world that was created perfectly for them. The whole middle is a mess. But then the end... <laughs> You get the Gospels and you get Jesus restoring this vision from the beginning. And at the very end, you see heaven coming down to earth and God's restoration and wiping away every tear from their eye. And there's no more suffering. There's no more racism. All the nations are coming together. Our purpose is restored. I think what Tolkien was trying to do is paraphrase what it says in Revelation 21. And this is what I want to leave you with. This is from the voice translation. 
I looked again, and I could hardly believe my eyes. Everything above me was new. Everything below me was new. Everything around me was new because the heaven and the earth that had been passed away and the sea was gone completely. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride on her wedding day, adorned for her husband and for his eyes only. And I heard a great voice coming from the throne. See, the home of God is with his people. He will live among them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. The prophecies are fulfilled. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning no more, crying no more, pain no more. For the first things have gone away. And the one who sat on the throne announced to his creation, See, I am making all things new. Turning to John, he says, Write what you hear and see. For these words are faithful and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will see to it that the thirsty drink freely from the fountain of the water of life. This is what we believe, but not everybody believes this. We have to acknowledge this is the Christian vision. This is what we believe. The cross is what we believe actually happened in Jesus. This future vision is what we believe actually is happening and will happen. But people still have a hard time believing that. So, as I said earlier, it's best to learn these, these ideas and to have these conversations and to kind of reconcile and figure out what it is exactly that you believe when it comes to suffering. Figure these out ahead of time and give the answer at the appropriate time. Use wisdom. And again, the best answer is just showing up like Jesus and just weeping at the tomb and being there. Presence, I don't know. We don't always know, but we're trusting and we're believing. And then all the stuff I said, you know, take that and keep that in mind. But as always, we're moving toward this vision of Jesus and the Gospels. I said I was going to stop with one thing, but I lied. This is the very last thing, I promise. And this ends our series, too. This is the last word we'll hear from Paul to the Thessalonian church. This is kind of how he wraps up uh, his second letter to the Thessalonians. Brothers and sisters, having shared all this, let me ask you to pray for us. Pray that this message of the Lord will spread quickly and receive the praise and respect it deserves from others as it has with you. Pray also that we would all be rescued from the snares of harmful, wicked people. After all, not all people are believing. Still, the Lord is true to his promises. He will hold you up and guard you against the evil one. We do not doubt the Lord's intentions for you. We are confident that you are carrying out and will continue to carry out the commands we are sending your way. May the Lord guide your hearts into God's pure love and keep you headed straight into the strong and sure grip of the Anointed One. That's it for me. Uh, Darren's going to come up here, share with some, us some prayer requests and needs, and uh, that's where we're going to go from here.